Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. Today we're talking about um, coaching and mentoring, which is actually a topic that's uh, quite close to our hearts, as it were. Asad and I started this podcast um, through the Mentoring Communications Hub, um, which is a mentoring scheme that uh, Nicola's also involved with. And we're very um, privileged to have um, Nicola Forshaw, a psychotherapist and also director of uh, Nine Wellbeing, who has a special interest in in, in this topic. Um, very warm welcome to the podcast, Nicola. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. I think it's quite an important topic, this, that we're talking about today, because I think it's something that we all appreciate is an important part of surgical training, but we don't actually think about it in detail and think about, you know, actually what it is and why it's important. And I think probably one of the first things that we should probably try and clarify is what terms we're using, uh, mentoring, coaching, which before I got involved in MAC, I didn't actually understand what those terms mean and what the difference is. Okay, yes, of course. So they're very interchangeable, aren't they? The terms coaching and mentoring. So I'm going to start with coaching because that's more my expertise. Um, so coaching we're very familiar with in terms of the sporting model. We know a lot about football coaching, athletics coaching, and, and often associated with elite performance. Uh, we also know of personal coaching, one-to-one coaching, team coaching, executive coaching. All of those terms are very, are very different but they share very common elements. So the common elements, first of all, is a coach will help you to become aware of your limiting mindsets, will help you to put new mindsets in place, and also help you to look at how you're behaving and how habits are formed in a very explicit way and start to challenge you around that. And the idea around that is to help you to become in touch and more in touch with your goals. So when we think about what a goal is, again, it's very uh, derived from sports. Of course, in our own lives, As humans, we're very goal-orientated creatures. And when we think about what a goal is, a a fully formed goal that a coach would help you to achieve is an internal representation of your desired state or outcome. So often we have a lot of goals going on, running around in our minds. Uh, There's some competing goals, work-life goals, some that go against one and some that that are very compatible. But what the coach will help you to do is to help you fully form your goal and make that goal more explicit. Once we understand what our goals are, we can start working towards breaking down the barriers that are there. The coach really is there to try and help you form your goals, but not by telling you what to do. And this is often very confusing because it's what's called non-directive coaching. And this is where it then differs from mentoring. So our more traditional traditional ideas about mentoring or traditional mentoring model is that you're an apprentice um, with an expert it's a kind of apprenticeship model. And, and many of you in surgery are very familiar with this model that you learn from the expert and the expert who is usually the consultant will show and tell, this is how I do it. This is how you do it. And that's what we're looking for in mentoring. We want someone, we want an expert, we want to model them. We want to follow their success. 
but largely we do that through being shown and told what to do. Whereas coaching is, is less directive than that. It's more about facilitating the other person, the coachee or the client, as we're often called in formal coaching, to find out what it is they want and then help them to move towards that goal. It's it's interesting that you say that only because in my head, in my sort of very limited understanding of coaching, I probably take on a sports model and all, all the sports films I've seen, it's always like, yes, coach, yes, coach, give me 20 more laps. And it's like, yeah. it's all yeah. very didactic. It's like, you do this, you do this, keep doing that, keep doing that. So it's it's really interesting that you say that coaching in, you know, surgical training or whatever is like the antithesis of that. Mm-hmm. The only other question I suppose I have for you is, is my wife watches some really like banal TV. Um, I can't remember what it is. Some, some reality TV rubbish. Um, Aiden Chelsea, that's it. And like every other bugger on that show, it decides they're going to become a life coach. And it all seems like a really vacuous kind of empty, bubble headed, what are they talking about kind of thing. Where, and I'm not, I'm definitely not trying to insult you here. So I'm going to have to tread very carefully, but (laughs) where in the kind of spectrum, does it fit between like performance coaching, i.e. you do this, 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 you will get to where I expect it to be. And then the kind of soundboard of, well, you tell me how you're feeling and what does that mean to you? And almost getting you to realize what you need to do kind of coach your model. Okay. So you're conflating psychobabble, reality TV and coaching here. So I'm going to tease those apart a little <laughs> bit and uh, you put me on the spot there. But um, essentially then it, what we're thinking about is you, you've just alluded to the sports model. And what I want to say about sports model and elite performance is it's not just about the drill. It's not just about muscle memory. It's not just about being shown and drilled into how to um, enhance a skill. That is a big part of sports coaching, but there's a lot more to it than that. So uh, a sports coach will often use visualization So we'll encourage the athlete to identify what their goal is, they're going to perform, how they break that skill set down, how they find their own way of getting that skill developed. And there was a a famous um, coach who was a a, a tennis pro, Tim Galway, who wrote a a quite a um, famous book now, a seminal book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And his work influenced this idea around non-directive coaching away from the sporting world. So so Tim's work looked at um, how do you get a, a tennis pro to this elite level without showing them everything they can do? So what they learn on in, in training, how once they get onto the court, how do they then execute those skills in a differentiated way? So once you've got a skill, if you can only apply it one way and you only learn one way to do it and that's where you've been shown, then you can't generalize that skill more broadly. So for a player's performance, they do need to be able to um get in touch with that skill and use that skill in different scenarios. So he um, started to use a more non-directive way of coaching. And this is in sports coaching, nothing to do with psychotherapy before the world of reality TV. So I'm going back that far. And largely he started to coach in the sports world by allowing the player to fail, by allowing them to try themselves how to execute the perfect serve for for want of a better uh, phrase. He would let them do it and get frustrated in that learning, but find their own way. But he'd shape and give feedback to allow them to start to develop that skill. So if we if we think about what's going on there, that the player is learning themselves how to develop that skill, largely through frustration, but also through curiosity. And what he then talks about 
is that we get inside our head. That's the inner game of tennis. That actually largely it's what we tell ourselves we can and can't do that we then go on to achieve or not achieve. So there's two elements that that um, notion of non-directive coaching, all of which doesn't sit in therapy. So although I am a therapist, I'm going to briefly touch on this. Psychotherapy largely uh, deals with emotional distress, emotional turbulence, past trauma, um, psychiatric conditions that that require quite intense therapeutic intervention. Whereas coaching is to help you if you haven't got a very deep level of emotional distress or, or a past issue that is intruding on your ability to perform today. A coach will help you to break down the steps you need to get to that goal. And there will be an element of modeling in that. There'll be an element of feedback, an element of that. Yes, you've got to do it. You've told me you're going to do this. So, you know, why isn't it happening? So quite challenging as well. So a coach to me uses an enhanced communication skill set to be able to really kind of uh, get into a relationship with the person they're trying to support and, and to help them keep moving forward. And by trying to stay away, as much as possible from very delicate emotional um, issues. I find in surgical training, a lot of our um, teachers, many of the consultants will take the more mentoring approach and they'll say, this is what you need to do because this is the way I do it. And we've, we've talked on the podcast previously how, how that can be frustrating sometimes, especially when you've got one teacher is telling you to do it one way um, and another teacher telling you to do it a completely different way. Do you think there are advantages then to to using a more coaching model than than mentoring? Um, in something like surgical training, where you know the person who's learning is allowed to make mistakes. Mm. In surgery, that's quite difficult because making mistakes can cost a cost a <laughs> lot. But but do you think that there's still advantages to coaching in in surgical training? Absolutely, in the in the right circumstances. So I, I completely concur with you that you know making mistakes for the sake of it is not appropriate uh, in in theatre, of course not. But there are other ways in which we have to learn, in which you have to learn as surgical trainees. It's not just about the skills of surgery, is it? But what I do understand around more contemporary models of of mentoring is it's less apprenticeship-based and largely becoming more coaching-informed. And the idea behind that is that you can still mentor by showing and telling and directing. And largely, that's what we're looking for when we're learning a skill in surgery, isn't it? We want someone who knows what they're doing to be able to learn from. So so that that absolutely is appropriate. But there's ways in which you communicate around that that might facilitate a more self-directed learning on the part of the the mentee or the trainee. So using a, a communication skill set that is saying, what would you do next? What have you learned? from this how might you approach this differently whilst also still holding the security and the safety and the psychological safety of showing and telling so i i firmly believe and certainly in medicine and surgery that there's a place for that interplay between mentoring and coaching so for me as an external coach who's not medically trained i'm largely when i'm i'm coaching surgical trainees it's usually around things like developing leadership skills becoming more assertive communicating more clearly um often it it can be around time management and managing emotional stresses to be able to to complete the demands of portfolio for ARCP. And so, so largely I'm not, I'm not, um, coaching around surgical skills. Of course, I wouldn't be, would I? Um, but that doesn't mean a surgeon and a consultant, and we have trained many consultants, including surgeons, can't have a coaching style in helping you to learn as a trainee. <laughs>
can other peers um, become coaches? Absolutely. And I'd, I wholeheartedly encourage it because I firmly believe that coaching skills are leadership skills and you trainees are the consultants of the future who are leaders and will need leadership skills. And what are the challenges of leadership? So the challenges of leadership are being able to be future focused, to be able to see the, the longer term future, not just the immediate concern, to be able to inspire others, to be able to communicate and engage with others, including people who are disengaged and people who are difficult and who may be in conflict with you. You have to have good enhanced communication skills to build those relationships. And you also need to be quite strategy focused, but realistic as well. So learning a coaching skill set early on in your career, I can only for in, in the right hands. And for those who want to, of course, I don't believe this is something that should be mandatory. But if it's something that appeals to you, I would really encourage you know, all trainees that are interested to be able to develop some coaching skills, because these are lifelong communication skills that will help you not only in your professional lives, but also in your personal lives, too. And so, yes, I think it's really possible for peers to coach one another. And I would really encourage a program like that. My initial big training I delivered in the NHS was in 2012. It was a training project to train a cohort of consultants um, from a wide variety of disciplines um, to become coaches themselves, to then coach other consultants. Because there was a, an acknowledgement that sometimes it requires a consultant to understand the world of another consultant and that and that might facilitate and foster an opening up around what might be difficult. And that was originally coming from doctors in difficulty. So it was when uh, a consultant had encountered some sort of um, disciplinary or difficult process that they were going through, an investigatory process, um, that they would be offered a trained coach who was also a consultant to support them as one aspect of the sport. Of course, there are other things in place too, but as one aspect um, consultants supporting one another. And that's that's a very successful program. That program is still running now. And I think that can be modelled down. And I would welcome and encourage that um, across all levels of training. Nicola, you touched on something really interesting there, the idea or the notion or the impetus to record this episode is the fact that our previous episode, we were talking about what happens when, you know, your career and your job sticks the boot in and, and you take a, a, a hit. Psychological performance is as important as technical performance. You know, we were talking about this. If you don't believe you've got the skills to do it, you just won't perform, basically, if you don't think you can do it. You'll be risk-averse. And if you're risk-averse, you'll get now done. But do you feel that coaching has got this kind of stigma surrounding it where it's used for people who, like you say, are in distress or underperforming? In uh, medicine and surgery, unfortunately, I would say in my experience, I can only speak from the work that I'm involved in. I can't speak for, for other coaches. But primar primarily, this comes down to funding. So there was funding to help where there's a problem. When something's gone wrong, it usually attracts funding to be able to put that right, doesn't it? I think we, I think we all recognize that, that system. And largely that's where coaching was first encountered, certainly at a more local level was around this association with doctors in difficulty, trainees in difficulty. And so we've worked very hard to reframe that because coaching is ultimately about peak performance. And if you get coaching because something's gone wrong, the aim of coaching is to boost you back up, to help you to learn from what's gone wrong. 
cognitively, at an affective level, meaning our emotional state, and also behaviorally. And if you feel safe, if you've made that mistake, if something has gone wrong and you are in a safe environment where you can reflect on that and you're given the time to work it through, I'm not talking about counseling here now, I'm talking about coaching, to reflect, to have a coach challenge your mindset, to help you to learn from it, then you will learn and you will grow and it will enhance your performance. My job as a coach is to help you with perhaps if something's gone wrong, but also to link you to your future self, which is your consultant self. What happens in our brain when we have a goal that is very explicitly formed? So we have an internal idea of our goals, which I alluded to before, but when our goals are very explicitly stated and we have an idea and we can visualize ourselves overcoming a difficulty to get to our goal, again, this derives from sports, performance and elite performance, then our brain's reticular activating system, the RAS, that bit screens out 99% of life's bombardment. So if we've got a goal, but we don't actually connect to it um, at an emotional or behavioral and a cognitive way, an explicit way, then it will get caught up in 99% of life's difficulties and the things that really command our attention. When we have a very explicit, fully formed goal, our brain's RAS system So it it screens out all of that interference and allows us to focus on the goal. That then enhances our belief. We can get there. We've got to overcome some difficulty, but isn't that part of life? Isn't that part of learning, being able to overcome obstacles and knowing we can get through and still be connected to our future hopes and our future goals? So a coach's job, unfortunately, you're right, it has been associated with doctors in difficulty or trainees who are somehow in difficulty. But actually, the process itself is not about that. It will help support around that. But it's ultimately about learning and looking to the future. I mean, the goal is very um, non-specific at the start. You know, the start of core training, you're told you'll be a registrar in two years. And the start of registrar training, you're told you'll be consulting in, in, in six years. It's not uh, broken down into personalised chunks. Um, and it does take you to have a good someone who you can look to for that kind of coaching advice to help you find your goals and i think you you phrased it quite well define them but what what would you say makes a good mentor okay so again i bring that back to communication skills uh being able to engage a mentee, not through fear or coercion, but being able to engage. So the social engagement system. So I, I think a mentor is ideally, and I will say ideally, because not as human beings, we're all very fallible. Uh, but ideally, it's someone who has a robust sense of what they can offer, a robust sense of their own achievements and accomplishments. Um, somebody who is confident in their own skills and abilities, because then they inspire confidence in others. In mentorship, we are looking for an expert to lead the way. But that expert shouldn't wield that expertise as power. Um, that expertise should should be shared and, and available. And uh, this is where I come back to the communication and engagement skill set of being able to um, transfer that skill, that knowledge in a way that the other person can digest. And I think that requires quite a lot of skill. I, th- I think we can show and tell, and that's a very traditional way of learning and a more didactic style of learning. It absolutely, I'm, I'm not questioning that whatsoever. But I think on top of that, 
I think there are ways to inspire. And usually that's through communication, engagement, confidence, and being quite articulate and I suppose approachable. I think my experience of mentoring, mentoring has been has been really good. My involvement in the whole scheme and the, how it's come to be, and even as doing this podcast, was I suppose around uh, a weak point in my training where um, I just felt pretty burnt out and fed up and tired. And I went to a supervisor, not my supervisors. They had no involvement at all in my training process. They were just another consultant that I could talk to that was helpful, sympathetic and a well-rounded human being. And I felt like I could just offload to them. And I don't know why, but they just sort of sat there and listened to me whinge and moan. And didn't even really tell me what to do so much as just humor me almost. Uh, They gave me some few constructive tips here and there. But essentially it was, you know, they threw it back in my face sort of. They were like, well, what are you going to do? Hi, it's all well and good saying you're unhappy about this and you're dissatisfied with this, but what are you going to do? You're just going to sit here and take it. And um, I suppose through that kind of process, I thought, well, you know what? I am going to I'm gonna have to sort it out and I can get on and fix it. And that process was really quite transformative and, and powerful. And it essentially got me from a state where I was kind of ambivalent towards my own training back to a level where I was performing at. I got to a bit where I was ahead of where I needed to be. And that, I mean, that was great. So I find it's a really, really helpful, beneficial process. And for me, you know, part of the reason I wanted to get back into Mac was then I felt like I could pay it forward. And so I've taken trainees who are doing really quite well, but there's perhaps a lack of direction and they've perhaps Mm -hmm. needed someone who's been there, trodden that path to say, well, actually, you want to avoid this, avoid this, and this is the way through those obstacles. So, I th- you know, if, if anyone's wondering or thinking about it, I would strongly encourage you to do it because it is really fulfilling. There's a certain sense of enjoyment and fulfillment watching people sort of, that term is self-actualize. They make that transition. They make that process. Maybe you live vicariously through them. You watch them do it. It feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it it feels like you're touching on two skill sets there. One is the skill of reflection. Reflection, I know, is a very dirty word in your world. Everyone hates to reflect (laughs) and it's not, it's not that skill that I'm alluding to. I'm talking about the skill of reflecting back. So sitting and kind of listening to what the person is saying to you, hearing it rather than just jumping straight in with solutions, just giving that bit of space for what sounds like you you called offloading uh, so you started to describe what was difficult for you and and what was unhelpful to you and the mentor listened and reflected back but they didn't just reflect back what they were hearing so they didn't just give you that space they then used a skill that we teach called reframing and the reframing is essentially the bit that says so what are you going to do about it so I'm hearing this this is how it is for you this is how bad it is this is what's difficult okay how do you want it to be what you're going to do. And in a nutshell, that's kind of what, what coaching is. Or rather than jumping straight in with the, what you should do is, it's learning to listen, reflect and reframe. And you yourself have just said that's incredibly powerful to be on the receiving end of that. And, and that can help. Now, then you're bringing us on to the reward 
of mentorship, aren't you? You know, why would somebody give their time to be a mentor? And I think what you're alluding to there, Asad, is what is what you have experienced is when you've then gone to help other trainees through mentoring yourself, you mentoring them, you're acquiring vicariously um, some of the pleasure that they might be getting from the progress that they're making and some of the reward that, that derives from that. And I think if you are somebody as a trainee listening now who might be interesting, interested rather in becoming a mentor, then these are some of the rewards. You are giving up quite quite some time. I appreciate that. And we all appreciate that. But actually, it can be quite a rewarding process as well. It can help you offset some of the more difficult aspects of your, your training pathway and your work. Um, it's interesting. I, I, my mentor has sort of ended up being Assad. So funny, funnily yeah. enough, being through this this podcast, he's ended up being. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because Asad is of a different specialty to me. He's vascular, um, in general. Um, his he, he doesn't hold any well. He doesn't hold any power over me, um, and I think that's actually quite a, a nice um, uh, mentor mentee relationship to have because I don't feel like, I feel a little bit more relaxed and free with him than I would with someone who was you know. Uh, someone like my consultant or maybe my senior reg in my hospital um, where I'm I'm trying to impress them mm. uh, and uh, I think that that when there's other things like that um, at play in the relationship it actually it, it, it can have a negative effect I think on the the mentoring um, going on whereas with Assad often the, the, the mentor we do is just on the podcast um, it feels like uh, I can take and not take what he says quite easily. I don't need to necessarily follow everything he says to me. I was with a junior trainee, I think it was two days ago or whatever, and we were trying to do um, preoperative planning that you have to do based on CT scans. And so it takes you time and you have to mess around and measure this and correct this angle and adjust this and measure the area and the total length and blah, 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 blah. And it's quite an obtuse set of processes to do. And whenever you read the jargon about it, it's all very text heavy. It's like measure the alpha angle, measure the beta angle. You want to measure the neck diameter, this, 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 this. Then you want to measure the the limb diameter. Then you want to take this, this, and, and it becomes so obstructive that I think, you know, I shied away from it for years. So I was trying to take a junior trainee through it. It became so easy. And then the second some of the consultants walked in and were like, what are you doing? I was like, uh, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then as they sort of stood there, arms folded, watching over the screen, like, have you taken this into consideration? I was like, uh, yeah, I think so. But I kind of just want you to leave because you're almost like invading our little safe environment where we can just mess around there's almost an element of of stage fight and performative anxiety that comes with being mentored by someone who is an expert compared to someone who is not an expert that maybe like the next step along where you need to be but the idea about stage fight, there's there's some very old fashioned ideas about our left hemisphere and our right hemisphere. And more modern neuroscience is kind of challenging and questioning that idea that we're left left dominant and right dominant. But one of the things that has shown in studies is that our left brain does appear to be taken up with the big picture. So when our left brain is more active, we are taking in much more detail. And our right brain, our right hemisphere is more responsible for fine detail 
and doing. So if we think about stage fright as in an actor and a performer, so let's keep it away from surgery for a moment. Then if somebody goes out onto stage and they corpse, so that, that idea of freezing, that, that actual stage fright is something we can deal with in coaching. What is largely happening is the left brain is taking in too much detail. It's looking at the audience. It's, it's, so we're not even, uh, um, predictions and beliefs at this stage. It's just taking in too much detail and it inhibits the right part of the brain, which wants to get into the fine detail and the doing and the performing. So what we try to do, uh, in coaching is, is we try to reduce that left brain activity by trying to screen out all the detail. And I noticed as I was watching you, Asad, you were even looking at your left shoulder as you were describing the consultant standing behind and you were referring to your left shoulder as you were trying to recount this story. So it was clearly a very present experience for you. So what we're trying to do in coaching is we're trying to, we, we can help with that because what we're trying to do is help minimize the detail being taken in and enhance focus. If we enhance our focus on the thing that we are meant to do, it will enhance our performance overall. So if you could have screened out the imposition of the consultants watching over you, it might be that your bright brain could have taken over and carried on uh, with, with doing the work. And that's true of any kind of performance activity and particularly where we're observed. There's always a, a different quality to being observed because we're in performance zone. We talk a lot in coaching about being in the stretch zone. The stretch zone is when you're not just la di everything's okay, I could do this in my sleep to the um, panic zone being or the danger zone being, I absolutely cannot cope with this. It's too frightening. The stretch zone is somewhere in the middle when you feel like you can perform, but it's not just coming really naturally to you. You've got to focus on elements of it to be able to do that. And that's very, that's a very, very rewarding place to be. And it's where we tend to learn best. Do you feel that time spent in the performance zone is is better than just episodes in the in the performance zone. And what I mean by that is at the minute, our technical skills are measured purely in numbers. Yes. And yeah. you've got to achieve this num- this many numbers and this many numbers. And if you haven't done that many numbers, then you haven't got X amount of experience, probably because it's a, easy to quantify. But I feel that even though I, I only operated once a week, because I was given quality time in a performance zone, my confidence and my ability to perform to the mark excelled. What would you say about sort of quantity versus quality in the, in the sort of training paradigm? Do you know what I mean? So the stretch zone, we can't spend 100% of our lives in the stretch zone because it would be too demanding. Despite the fact it would be very rewarding, what would happen is it would stop being rewarding and it would become the norm. And it will become quite tiring because what we do need is we need to spend some time in our comfort zone. We need to be able to retreat. So if, if we come out and we've done something that's quite challenging, when you do that and you do it well enough and you're happy with how you do it, you come back, you relax. Usually we need to be uh, moving between those states. We can't stay in one equally. So if we stayed in the comfort zone, which is our relaxed place where we don't really need to think too much, we're not using too much of the resources in our brain to be able to function. That's actually quite stifling as well. So it's not necessarily healthy to be there a large amount of the time either. The idea is that there is a balance between these zones, but that there's enough um, opportunity to be in the comfort zone. But what can happen is if we become very exhausted or burnt out, and I'd say burnout's a, a different topic uh, for maybe for discussion. Uh, but if we become 
very burnt out or emotionally exhausted, we need to be in the comfort zone, but we start to get a little bit too comfortable there. And then we start to lose confidence in our abilities. Our energy depletes even further because when we're in the performance zone, we actually get energy, bizarrely. It's, it's quite draining afterwards, but at the time, because of the adrenaline and the cortisol and the focus and the hyper-focus that we have, it's actually very, very rewarding for us. It's very energy-giving and energy-sustaining. Um, whereas when we're in our comfort zone, we're not really regenerating our energy. We're replenishing it. But uh, what I will say is we do go through periods, all of us, because we're only human, where we might need times of just being in our comfort zone, particularly after the, the COVID situation, all the challenges we have now. I'm a big advocate for being in the comfort zone, even as a coach. But when it starts to become uncomfortable um, or, or too comfortable, either way, you notice we've got to get back into that stretch zone again. We've got to get there. But we do go through periods in our career and certainly in your training pathway where you're probably in a prolonged performance state due to ARCP stuff going on, due to needing various things for your portfolio. And that's when you do need to then bring in the recharge element of it, of being in in the comfort zone and finding ways to do that, even if it can't be in the work situation or the training situation. If I'm coaching someone who's in that prolonged state, um, I will be encouraging them to find things away from work to be able to um, come back and retreat to, to kind of let that energy restack again and get some homeostasis. And of those two zones, we talked about where does mentoring coaching best take place, do you think? From a coaching perspective, I'm grinning because in every coach training I deliver, I, I do an exercise on this to begin with. So can you imagine what it's like to set goals from your comfort zone? Very personal goals to you. So let's keep it away from training now. What might it be like to set goals from your comfort zone? Uh, I wonder, At first, I thought maybe easier. But actually, it, it's, I, I find myself more ambitious when I'm in that stretch zone because I've, maybe you've got more energy and you're more motivated. You think, well, if I'm doing it now, I can do, do even more. Whereas when you're in your comfort zone, it's, it's, it's difficult to uh, motivate yourself to leave. Um, I suppose your, your goals will differ depending on which zone you're in. I, I would agree with that. So when we set goals that are quite challenging, we are more likely to achieve them. We're more likely to learn through that process. We, When we are grappling with something and a little bit confused, provided we're not overly confused, we become more curious. When we're curious, we produce dopamine. So our, our reward pathways are very active when we're setting goals that are quite stretching to us. So it is quite important to set goals from our stretch zone. But what I will say in counter to that, and I am going to use my mental health hat here, is that if I'm encountering people in coaching, and I do, who may be burnt out or exhausted, I will start by encouraging them to have some goals in their comfort zone to help them get started and to help get a sense of agency again and a sense of motivation, a sense of I can do it. If I start help stop pushing them too quickly to be setting goals from more of the performance, the stretch zone, they may feel a bit overwhelmed. Part of the reason we wanted to do this episode is we we talked uh, previously about, you know, like I'm saying, what happens when uh, life sticks the boot in. And part of that episode, I was detailing how I dug myself out of like a a bit of an abyss. And 
what I sort of did, and I wonder if this is what I'm describing is just a a pretty um, non-technical way of doing it, is I would basically pick easy wins. So if there were cases, I would pick the easy case. And consultant says, you can do one thing on this list or one thing. I'd be like, well, I'll do the easy things. I know I can do that. I'll, I'll pick an easy assessment or an easy encounter, essentially because I knew it was low risk, low reward, high chance of success. And then I'd kind of get one little confidence brick and I would cement it onto my little brick wall. And gradually I would pick, I'd do quite a lot of easy wins because I was just sort of building my confidence up brick by brick so that at least I've kind of got a cushion so that when I'm going on to more complex things, I don't feel so hopeless if they they didn't work out. Is Is that essentially what you're referring to? What you're describing is absolutely what I was talking about there, but also it doesn't have to be just in the professional capacity i would very much encourage that in the personal life as well because often socializing has stopped communicating with others has stopped eating well has stopped exercising has stopped so i might encourage um, some small wins there because that can help as well um, to get the energy back and the confidence back to apply to the more challenging situations at work it's such an all-consuming beast this job i suppose any job in healthcare it's so all-consuming that you you just lose sight of yourself as a person sometimes you know you're just this automaton that does this and does this and has this many checks and balances and numbers and performers and quotas to satisfy and you've got to do this thing this thing this thing and you know like you say we're all people we've all got stuff going on Uh, and one day we retire fundamentally i feel like maybe that's not the (laughs) the right attitude that the, the professional bodies that we have want us to espouse but it's just the way I see it, you know, like we'll be doing this job for however long we do the job. And then someone will go, okay, you're right. There you go. There's your pension. Go now. You're probably too old for this. And um, we, we've found someone that can replace you. And then your life's work just kind of gets scratched off the door and someone else's name gets slotted in. And, and then, you know, if you've, if you've spent all your time doing that, then, then you're stuffed, aren't you? When you, when you've, you've almost lost your identity, it can be like a real unbalancing moment. Yeah, and that, that's why it's important in, in, in coaching. We're coaching humanity. We're coaching the humanity of you as trainees, as human beings, and working with your values, what gives you meaning, what's the purpose, including in the work and how that plays out in your home life as well. And it is really important to have a sense of yourself. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I'm an amateur philosopher at heart, and um, I'm a big believer that we, if we understand ourselves and we have a continuity of ourself, that when we go through these transitions, such as retirement, such as divorce, such as bereavement, then we can lose sight of ourselves. If, if our self is so invested in that thing that is gone, we lose sight of ourselves. That's actually an, a psychologically unhealthy place to be. So a good health check for us, all of us, and this isn't a therapy thing, uh, is, is, you know, do I have a sense of myself away from the training pathway? And I know I'm not popular for saying that with any of your superiors, but it is what I coach. Because you've got you've got to sustain, and you have to have lives. You have to live your lives, and you have to have a life beyond. Mm-hmm.